from the Rosie Studios of PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in Bethlehem, PA, it's time for another viral episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. There's a rose disease making the rounds that's causing serious consternation. On today's show, I'll reveal how I accidentally conquered the allegedly invincible rose rosette virus when it struck my garden. Plus, a United Nations researcher comes to the Lehigh Valley to learn what our methods of sustainable agriculture can do to help fight hunger and deprivation in the third world. Plus, your telecommunicated questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and ridiculously rarefied ramifications. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you beating the worst disease in the planet with a pair of pruners. Right after this. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in the beautiful Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. It doesn't matter what month it is, we are still the Christmas city. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, Rose Rosette Virus. It's supposed to be invincible, killing roses by the thousands. I think I actually found a cure for it accidentally years ago. We'll talk about that after lots of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Laura, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, thank you. Very happy to be talking to you today. I'm very happy to be talking to you, Laura. Where are you? I live in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, specifically actually the Ocean View neighborhood, so I'm two blocks from the bay. Oh, that's great. That's great. Ocean View. Now, uh, the bay is pretty huge, Laura. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so where's yeah. where's Ocean View in, um, in relation to either Norfolk itself or the resort area of Virginia Beach? Uh, just a little bit north of Norfolk. Oh, okay. And you, you say you're how close to the, to the bay? Two blocks. Oh, that's nice. Is there a beach there? I know there is in some parts of the bay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. There, there's actually a very nice beach. And is it is it called the Ocean View Beach? Um, there's actually a few different. It's kind of one long strip, but they each have their own little name. Okay. It's not where Chicks Beach is, is it? Chicks Beach is uh, to the east of us, actually. Okay. Yeah, that's a nice place. All mm-hmm. right. Yes, what can we beautiful. do for Laura with an ocean view, or at least a bay view? Yes. <laughs> Well, today my question for you has to do with lawn biodiversity. Oh, cool. Um, So to give a little bit of a uh, background here, so my front lawn, which is the lawn in question, it's a very shaded area, and so grass doesn't grow very well, but I've never been a fan of uh, monocultures in my garden. Mm -hmm. So I've been feeding clover and allowing just random plants to grow in my yard, but my husband has become very enamored with a neighbor's Bermuda grass lawn, mm-hmm. which is just completely covered. So I wanted to ask you about um, what sort of plants would be good to fill out a lawn that's pretty shady and relatively sandy soil, because, again, we're close to the bay. But um, I still want to be able to attract our local pollinators and beneficial insects to our yard. And, I mean, that's that's been a big hobby of mine, I guess, with the bugs. But... 
anything that you might recommend that, that I could do or is Bermuda grass going to be okay? I'm just concerned about it taking over. Well, what's the sun situation in the lawn that your husband covets? Is it the same as yours? No. So that's, that's where I kind of uh, laugh about. It's actually pretty sunny in that lawn. We yeah. have three trees, and I think they don't have any. Yeah, no. Um, that's, a, that's a false prayer on his part. Uh, mm-hmm. Bermuda grass, it, first of all, Bermuda grass would deny you your uh, biodiversity. It just mm-hmm. takes over. And it is yeah. a running grass that is famous for um, not leaving any bare spots. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're into a lawn fetish, it's a great thing, especially as you get further south. But uh-huh. the only grasses that will grow fair now is your shade year round or is it caused by trees once they fill in um it's pretty much caused by trees when they fill in but i have pretty good branch coverage even throughout the winter that it does block out a lot of light if if you wanted to meet him halfway you would Mm -hmm. allow him to sow a fine fescue or a mix of fine okay. fescues but you wouldn't do that now anyway you would okay. do especially with the heat of your summers mm-hmm. which which sometimes start in may as i remember yeah so we've had a few days in the 70s already yeah well i can i can remember a few days in the hundreds when i was there for a wedding in june one year mm-hmm. so yes and especially where you are he would sow the mm-hmm. seed of this of the fine fescues uh, right around August 15th. Okay. Now, in the meantime, okay. he can prepare the soil and do all that. And mm-hmm. he, it is his best chance at getting a stand of grass. Now, when I mm-hmm. say fine fescues, that means the blades are exactly the opposite of the big blades on Bermuda grass. These are fine, uh-huh. um, much smaller, more delicate. It can take a lot of foot traffic, but it it is the mm-hmm. best grass for shade, period. Okay. Um, now, Excellent. all of the fescues are what are called clumping grasses as opposed to running uh-huh. grasses like the Bermuda. So the Bermuda fills in its own bare spots, advances, tries to take over other lawns. The fine mm-hmm. fescue would need to be oversown every fall. Uh, when I say fall, I mean that August 15th magic number, August 15th to September 15th. Um, mm-hmm. But because it's a clumping grass and not a running grass, that would allow you to play because you're always going to have some bare spots coming up, again, especially okay. in shade. So he'd get something that looked like a lawn from the typical distance, um, which is 50 feet. No lawn looks good when you stand on top of it and look straight down. Lawns mm-hmm. are meant to be looked at from a distance, and then they have the illusion of being purely green. One thing um, that they do in Europe a lot, and it's underutilized over here, is in the mm-hmm. fall again, probably in your case, well after he would sow the seed, once the lawn is established, you can mm-hmm. go out and you can go nuts with what are called the minor bulbs or the special bulbs. These are spring bulbs that come up super early and are relatively small. Things like glory Mm -hmm. of snow, snowdrops, which in Pennsylvania often do come up while there's still snow on the ground. Mm -hmm. And, of course, crocus 
and maybe some of the mini daffodils. So right. this would give you this, this wonderful spring surprise, all this color in your lawn, uh, grape hyacinth as well. When you're, when you're doing, they used to call them minor bulbs, now they call them special bulbs. Um, mm -hmm. I guess they got old enough to drink. But the <laughs> thing about that is you wanna plant them by the hundreds, you know, okay. big patches of them. And they are very ephemeral. They'll be up for you to watch, you know, for a couple of weeks, and then they'll die back. And their life cycle is so fast that their leaves can collect enough solar energy to bloom again the following year, even if he mows them mm -hmm. down shortly after the flowers fade. Oh, so you'd have this amazing burst of diversity that would then mm -hmm. seemingly vanish. But I can tell you, I have been watching the crocus in front of my house, and it mm -hmm. is filled with native bees, native ground-nesting stingless bees. And they okay. are loving the crocus. They are all over it. And then after yeah. that, sure, you can sow some, you know, as long as he's not going to be worried that you're destroying his perfect lawn, you can, <laughs> you know, you can sow some clover in there. When mm -hmm. he mows the clover, that'll also feed the lawn. So, oh, good, point. good, yeah, uh, clover is uh, a nitrogen-fixing legume. So once its roots are colonized by soil-dwelling organisms that you should have, mm -hmm. it will absorb nitrogen from the air into its tissues, and then when it's cut and decomposes, that nitrogen will be released to the lawn. Nitrogen is the only food that a lawn needs, and it's the only food that should ever be put on a lawn in the tidewater area because you're surrounded uh -huh. by so much of the bay. You don't want to use anything containing any kind of phosphorus at all. Okay, that's really great to know, and that's also really going to help my case here with keeping my clover that I love. Yeah, and that would give you color, and there's probably very little um, that pollinators like more than clover. Mm -hmm. They'll be all over it. And then, you know, if you want to have some fun, you know, maybe you could box off an area that would technically not be lawn, and you could grow some bee balm there, uh, uh -huh. some butterfly weed, you know, or in containers at the edge of the lawn, and that way get your, yeah. get your pollinators. He's, no offense, but he's never going to have a full lawn in your situation. <laughs> But if you want to help him, if you guys, if, if you can achieve some meeting of the minds, have him spread mm. compost into your sandy soil before he sows the seed, and he'll get twice as thick a lawn as he would in, with the sand alone. Oh, wonderful. Okay, is that any help? Yeah. I really love what they do in Europe with the, with the bulbs in the lawn. It, it's ephemeral. Yeah. It, it is, it's better than Prozac for relieving the misery of the mm -hmm. month of March. It's, it's everything it should be. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful idea. I do have some crocus and a couple colonies of uh, snowdrops growing already that I just adore. So I'll certainly have to see if I can convince them to let me plant them out throughout the yard. Yeah, because they're only going to be there for tops three weeks or a month. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. But the, one of the oh, most I'm important sorry. things about that is mm -hmm. that when they're there, that's when there's very little else in bloom. So the native bees mm -hmm. really thrive on those early bulbs. Oh, 
Excellent. All right. Okay. Well, I think that's it. I, I, that, you know, I really appreciate your help. Um, it's really answered a lot of questions, especially about the Bermuda grass. Mm-hmm. I was concerned about how well that would grow. It would. And I just, I love this bald idea. Yeah. If he, if he insists and he's going to try the Bermuda grass, however, because that's a mm-hmm. warm season grass, that gets planted in the spring. Cool season, okay. cool season grasses like fescues get planted in late summer. I got you. Oh. All right, so if you tell him that, you're at least meeting him halfway. Hey, I'm going to give you your best shot at having a lawn, pal. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure. You take care. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that your next chance to catch me, Kvetchen, in person will be at the Loving Our Earth Expo at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Exton, PA, on Saturday, May 4th. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with imperative information about roses and more of your imperative phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural, organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. It is time to welcome our special guest and my old friend, Sebastian Kretschmer, who is in the Lehigh Valley on behalf of the United Nations researching organic food systems. It's part of the One Planet Network from the UN Food and Agricultural and UN Environmental Programs. Um, And somewhere in there is the University of Kassel in Germany. I've known Sebastian for 15 years. We've worked on major projects together. And I think what he's doing here in the Lehigh Valley is darned interesting. So Sebastian, welcome to my TV show here and my radio show and my kitchen and everything like that. (laughs) So nice to be with you. The UN is researching organic food systems around the planet because they're the UN, right? Mm -hmm. And they're the only place they're researching in the United States is southeastern Pennsylvania. <laughs> how, how did that get picked as mm-hmm. like the example of um, organic agriculture and consumerism in the states? <laughs> Good question. We were, <laughs> we were bouncing around different examples, like Vermont was one of them. We're looking at local food systems where there is a, a visible organic presence of different stakeholders. We were looking at California, even the Midwest came up. And then in the end, I nominated Southeast PA as a, a case in this global case study. Because oh, you lived in Pennsylvania. You were born in Germany, mm-hmm. and you're back in Germany now. Mm-hmm. But you were here in the States for 15 years, right? That's right. I ran a CSA, started it from scratch, and uh, also started the Philadelphia um, Prison Project, the Orchard Program. And uh, yeah, did a bunch of stuff in so this let, area. So let's go back there before we talk about what you're doing here. Let's let's talk about your resume, uh, because mm-hmm. you were on my show when it was out of Philly about mm-hmm. a number of these different things. And when you say you started a CSA, that was this was out of a very famous a farm in the area. This was Kimberton, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, in some ways that was the starter cell of the organic work in this country. It was the first biodynamic farm in the U.S. at the old Kimberton Waldorf School. as a thousand acres of contiguous biodynamic land. And in 2003, I started a biodynamic CSA there. And we, I guess we met when you asked me to come out and give a talk about beneficial insects to yeah. your interns and volunteers at the end of their exactly. season with you, right? That was so cool. Remember that? It was a beautiful summer evening. You sat on the steps of the... Yeah, I wasn't going to go inside I like know. you had planned. I, I said, know. we're having school outside it was tonight. so nice. I had started an apprenticeship program, like European-style two-year apprenticeship program of theory and praxis, and part of the theory modules was to, to have special guests talking about special topics. <laughs> and instead you got me. And uh, the work you did for the prison system in Philadelphia, I found remarkable uh, because that was a case where that was a story I wanted to do. And then I found out you were involved mm -hmm. and you helped establish an orchard, which is probably the hardest um, area of mm -hmm. plants to care for organically. <clears throat> True. At uh, which prison was it? Or that was at the, the big uh, Philadelphia Industrial Correctional Center. Mm -hmm. What a name. And they let you out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a huge prison complex with like over 6,000 inmates at the time. And we were working with the sort of, um, you know, lower, um, what's it called? Risk. Yeah, lower <laughs> risk populations. Um, awesome guys, you know, that all have the farming in their blood. And in some ways, it was a sort of inspiration, you know, for the guys to partake in this sort of sustainability journey of organic farming as a way to uh, learn new skills and to, you know, be part of that beautiful community. And, and what a great counterpoint to being in a cell. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't get a better alternative than to be outside in the sunshine, mm -hmm. you know, working with trees. I know. And the site was remarkable. It's just on the prison campus still, abutting the Penny uh, Creek uh, and the uh, Fairmount Park. And uh, so, yeah, we turned this old sort of shooting range and just sort of weird usage site uh, from the past into this vibrant orchard. And then finally, there's a project that I guess I roped you mm -hmm. into. Um, I have a soft spot for the Salvation Army from mm -hmm. my dad's experiences during the war. Mm -hmm. And I was contacted by them that they were building a new facility called the Croc Center mm -hmm. in a very blighted area of North Philadelphia. True. And they were contemplating having a garden. And I went out and spoke with them and I wound up being a fundraiser for mm -hmm. them. And then when the time came, um, you and I and a few other people actually designed the garden and, and mm -hmm. you know, supervised the installation. Mm -hmm. You and I put up the, the, the hoop house, right? Because mm -hmm. they were doing it wrong. I know. They were, they were putting the plastic on wrong. And you and I had both uh, stretched plastic over hoop yeah. houses. So yeah. we got our hands dirty. I and know. I have been there. I make a point of going there every season. Mm -hmm. And the garden is just spectacular. And the people from the mm -hmm. neighborhood who come in uh, to either work in the garden or just be there. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
there's that tremendous sense of peace there. Yeah. And they grow a lot of food. Yeah. You know, a lot of potatoes, sweet potatoes, mm-hmm. um, melons. tons of tomatoes, melons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very productive. Yeah. Super. So now you're working on this project uh, for two different branches of the U.N., mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know you're in southeast Pennsylvania this week to um, essentially go back and tell them what's happening in the United States. Mm-hmm. Will you be traveling to other parts of the world as well, or are oh, different yeah. researchers doing that? For sure. I um, have taken on six out of the 12 countries where we're researching these local organic food systems. So I'm doing India, um, Uganda, um, Colombia. Ecuador, Sweden, and the U.S. Okay, yeah. What do those have in common? You know, geez, I don't know. Must be a letter in there, right? That's the right question. What do they have in common? Because that's the point of the research, to find patterns. What do these organic food systems, when looking through the actor's lens, we're looking from primary production, from the farmer's perspective, processors, traders, retailers, the consumption, you know, community of eaters from science or sometimes municipal support. Um, so all these different stakeholders in these local food systems, we're interviewing them and, uh, and see what they have to say. What makes their world go around? What, what makes them tick? You know, what, what drives them? What are the motivations? How are the relations uh, between the actors? And uh, most importantly, what outcomes can be perceived? Uh, both in their personal lives, but also in the community and in the ecosystem from the engagement of this, uh, with this organic work. And you, from your time spent in Pennsylvania, you were more familiar with the Philadelphia area and the area around Phoenixville mm-hmm. in the suburbs, mm-hmm. whereby I've lived here in the Lehigh Valley mm-hmm. um, half my life. At this point, perhaps more than half my life. And over time, of course, I've gotten to know the the players or the actors. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we first started uh, to broadcast the show out of uh, out of Bethlehem mm-hmm. here in these studios, early on, one of our first guests uh, was um, the director of a place called the Seed Farm, where we're going to go nice. after we're done doing the show today. And the Seed Farm, which is it's. It was ridiculous because I'd lived here for 20 years thinking that it was a place that grew out seed. I knew it was organic, mm-hmm. so I figure, oh, they're doing organic sweet corn seed or this or that. No, mm-hmm. um, they're growing farmers, that they're semi-permanent. There's a woman who's mm-hmm. growing cutting flowers there, mm-hmm. um, and she doesn't have any space to do it where she lives. Yeah. So she learned how to do it there, and now she's renting the yeah. land. and. And she's a huge success. Mm-hmm. And there are many other models. And the one that has been most successful here in the Lehigh mm-hmm. Valley is the farmer's market model. I wish Sal Panto had been here. He is the mayor of Easton. It had always had a farmer's market. I can remember they uh, invited me to come be the keynote speaker at, I think it almost seems impossible until you realize how old this part of the country is. I think it was their 400th anniversary. Mm-hmm. You know, that puts parts of Europe to shame. Um, but this, the farmer's market was there. 
and it was kind of floundering, and then investments were made in it, new farmers were brought in. I think at the same time, the public's interest in not only buying fresh food and organic food, but meeting the farmer. This was during the era of the face of the food. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that the food was simply labeled or anything like that. You're interacting with the people who grew it, and these farmers learned amazing social skills rather than just sell mm -hmm. what was there. They said, oh, you know, have you ever tasted these mm -hmm. tiny little mini cucumbers? Yeah. And they do some sampling and boom, you know, all of a sudden they'd be selling out of those little cucumbers, yeah. you know, in the first 10 minutes they were open. And it has expanded dramatically. It mm -hmm. is actually a draw. It's a destination. I realize it's not exactly in the organic um, method, but they have a festival there every year called Bacon Fest mm. that attracts tens of thousands of people. It just turns the town upside down. And single-handedly, this farmer's market has not only revitalized a community, but an entire city. Mm -hmm. Easton is now a cool mm -hmm. place to go. Restaurants spring up around the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, I think it's one of the prime examples of what you should take back to the UN. Mm -hmm. For sure. And the, this good food revolution has uh, many emergent properties. If you look at food systems and how the different drivers that go into it Uh, create synergies that allow the system to display a system behavior. And the sort of globalized, anonymous food system has rather lousy behavior. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. But these local, vibrant food systems, they display very intelligent behavior. And so um, this is, uh, you know, one of the beautiful outcomes. Also, what you mentioned, the farmer's sort of social status, uh, seriously, Uh, rising uh, uh, like that, being a, a local hero. Because farmers, after all, they want to actually work with nature. And sooner or later, when you participate in a local food movement, you want to be you know, as ecological and regenerative with your farming methods anyway. Right? So that's what I mean. It's, it's the, these uh, sustainable food systems around the world that actually display a pattern. And uh, what we're really interested in uh, researching with and, and for the UN is to, uh, to see how food systems can contribute to this new agenda for sustainable development expressed in these so-called SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Ooh, they used to sounds be, like a disease. No, they used <laughs> to be known as the Millennium Goals, and now yeah. they're like these really cool emblems of the 17 big humanity goals, beautiful goals, you know. And so uh, food systems have a huge role to play. And so one uh, of these beautiful outcomes of sustainable food systems is that they revitalize rural areas and create these new linkages between They revitalize urban, yeah, urban areas. Absolutely, yeah, through short, short supply chains, you know, it's uh, bringing the food into the public procurement, municipalities realizing their purchasing power and how the, the local food should really be part of the school uh, lunches and stuff like that. Very much so. One mm. thing I remember back in, um, back when I was editor of Organic Gardening in the 90s, is it became clear we didn't need studies. Mm. But I, you know, spent a lot of time in Center City Philly. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And every community garden, and I think city of Philadelphia has mm-hmm. more community gardens per square mile yeah. than any other place in be. the world. And the property values went up, mm. you know, which is a mixed bag. But wherever there was a community garden, people wanted to live nearby. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's open a cafe mm-hmm. across the street. I bet it would do good. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little restaurant. Maybe yeah. we can buy produce, the extra produce from yeah, the people exactly. who were growing over there. Super, yeah. And very much like mm-hmm. Easton, what I hope you're going to find mm-hmm. is the ripple effect. Mm-hmm. Is Because I, I don't believe Easton had a lot of money to mm-hmm. invest in the revitalization mm-hmm. of the market. Mm-hmm. So the return on their investment is beyond anything I mm-hmm. think anybody in the finance world could mm-hmm. anticipate. Yeah. Oh, what I find so beautiful, too, is that it's this notion of uh, food sovereignty, right? People actually connecting. You with wear a crown while you're farming? What is that? <laughs> no, it's, the, it's a sense of, you know, um, food traditions, traditional diets, mm-hmm. and connecting with the agriculture around you, the idea of a food shed. You know, and it's that's uh, where you keep your hammers and uh, kitchen forks and stuff. It's the idea of actually resilience, you know, and and creating uh, communities of practice where the cultural identity actually grows with also the sort of agrarian landscapes. And more and more cities around the world are now realizing that food is the great convener. And food is actually becoming a matter of policy. New inclusive food system governance mechanisms are taking place, actually pioneered by the US, those so-called food policy councils that began in the 90s new governance mechanisms where the farmer and the chef and and you know the mayor sit around round tables and discuss how they can create a more sustainable food system and it, it is that sense of community we were talking in my kitchen mm. earlier today when you have a party you can't get people out of the kitchen mm-hmm. it's where they convene yeah yeah even if you chase them they they keep coming back to the kitchen the, know. you know Food's at the center of everything. Mm, It's so true. Food is really what connects us all, you know. And if you consider all the uh, so-called negative externalities of our food system, right, uh, you realize what organic and other sustainable practices actually contribute uh, in terms of, you know, not contaminating the groundwater, not emitting as many, you know, nasty emissions and toxicities in, in, into the atmosphere. And tastes better. And tastes better, thank you. And make <laughs> you happier, probably, too. All right. Sebastian, where do you go from here? Actually, from here, uh, we'll be touring the local uh, PA community some more. No, no, I mean uh, countries. Oh, yeah. Well, the next will be Ecuador, the okay. city of Quito, who uh, actually uh, the mayor is uh, has set up a rather enlightened uh, municipality-driven task force. And so they've uh, ramped up the uh, urban farming, and it's uh, really beautiful, mostly driven by organic. And when do you have to uh, finish up your report for the UN? We have a year's time okay. you know, to compile all these stories and to extract you know, this sort of beautiful uh, pattern that we want to uh, present to the UN as sort of lessons learned or inspirations. Your personal website where people can find out mm-hmm. what you're doing, learn a little bit more about you, mm-hmm. is one 
www.villagefarm.org, right? That's right. All right. Well, we wish you luck. We anticipate your report. Maybe we'll have you back Mm -hmm. when it's all done. Absolutely safe travels. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're one of my heroes. (laughs) Well, thank you. That's very kind. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear at 1 and 3 at the Town Center Garden event in Reston, Virginia on Sunday, May 5th. But don't go looking for all the details at the event section of our website just yet because we'll be right back with imperative information about roses and more of your imperative phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in beautiful Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I'm beautiful Mike McGrath. And coming up in a little bit, we will talk about an interesting experience I had with Rose Rosette virus, which is supposedly incurable. But I'll tell you right now, I still got a rose that had it and don't have it no more. And you'll want to find out what I did. And you will. After a couple more of your fabulous phone calls, phone calls, phone calls. I'll get this right. I'm a professional. Calls of phone at 833-727-9588. Noelle, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. And where is Noelle doing well? In Spokane, Washington. Okay. Now, does everyone in Spokane call it Spokane, or are you 50-50? I think everyone calls it Spokane, but I've only been here for about three years. Okay. Well, you still count. Okay. (laughs) All right. What can we do for you in whatever the name of that place in Washington State is? Uh, In Spokane, Washington. Well, spring is coming, and last fall um, we have a cherry tree in the backyard, and it always dumps its leaves over, leaves over the yard, and this year I decided to gather them up and toss them in my garden. Um, we bought this house about three years ago. It only had one owner before us, and my garden has kind of been waxing and waning. Um, some it, The first year was an experiment. Uh, <laughs> I'm not from this area, um, and I didn't water it quite enough. Uh, the last two years have been okay, but I think the soil needs some mulching, some amending, so I threw those leaves on. Unfortunately, I just picked them up and threw them on. I didn't shred them. And so my question is, do I just um, rake them up and take them off? Because I realize now that if I leave them that way, no water is probably going to get to my garden. Um, Or do I run a lawnmower over it? Is this salvageable? Oh, it's totally salvageable. You didn't do the the worst thing. Cherry leaves aren't very large. Yeah, yeah. They're almost not even leaf-like. Now, if you'd done that with oak leaves or maple leaves or some other big leaf, maybe you could have smothered the soil a little bit. But you didn't till the leaves into your soil, which would have have been a reverse mitzvah. So they're just laying on the surface. And this is something I always try to stress at this time of year Anything that's on the surface of your soil in the form of any kind of a mulch needs to be pulled back now, at least temporarily, so that the soil can be struck by the sun directly and warm up. 
Oh, it, okay. If you leave those leaves on top, it's going to keep the soil cool. So you want gotcha. to get them off anyway. What are you going to plant? Um, tomatoes, peppers, some squash. Okay. Um, do you have compost or access to compost? Um, I don't. I was going to, we have a local worm farm, and I was actually going to buy a bunch of vermicompost. Oh, okay. Isn't that terrible, though? It sounds like you're taking rats to the opera. Vermiculture. Come on. <laughs> right. Uh, worm castings are perhaps the only item around in gardening that might be better than compost. Okay, I'm not sure great. they have the disease-fighting properties of compost, but okay. they, they contain every possible nutrient, including down to the rarest micronutrients. So oh, awesome. they're a tremendous fertilizer. Uh, in the future, I would like you to find a good source of high-quality yard waste compost for your tomatoes because it prevents disease. Gotcha. Now, for people who think that you're in the same climate as Seattle, in Seattle, I would say you have to get yard waste compost to put under your tomatoes because it's so wet there. Gotcha. You, so you are shockingly desert. dry, correct? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. We're kind of deserty. Yeah. So it, it's not as big an issue with you. So okay. what I would do, I would, uh, and you can, are, are you raised beds or flat earth? Uh, flat earth. Okay. You got to start planning out some raised beds, you know, make one okay. a year or something like that. You'll never look back. Okay. But um, awesome. when you put your plants in the ground, uh, surround them, I guess you're going to give them about a half a cup of worm castings a piece. Yeah, probably. And mix that into the top inch of soil to help okay. them become activated. And then do something to break up the leaves, even though they're not that big and then use those to mulch uh, the garden with. Oh, awesome, thank you so much. Yeah, the, you just don't wanna use, especially during the growing season, whole leaves, because as you said, it'll prevent rain from getting through, and yes. air, air is very important too. But okay. once you shred those leaves, they'll make the perfect mulch, and interestingly enough, you'll get your own worm castings, because earthworms will live under that leaf litter. All right, thanks so much, Mike. Oh, my pleasure, good luck, Noel. Donna, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, glad Donna. Glad to be here again. <laughs> uh, I'm glad to have you here. Have you been on before? I have. Okay. And I'm the tomato lady from Avalon, New Jersey. Where it is cooler by a mile, they say. Absolutely. And today it is in particular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's still early, Donna. Not tomato planting time yet. <laughs> what can we do you for? Okay. I have a problem because I have a fig tree that a, a friend of mine had, had given to me for a birthday present three years ago. Mm -hmm. I planted it, and it is now about seven feet tall and about seven feet wide. And the question is, how should I prune it? Well, uh, has it been protected over winter? This year, no. Other winters, yes. Okay. And uh, how does it look? Uh, do it looks fabulous. Okay, so you don't think it, it, it in, in many ways, it was a fairly mild winter, especially down the shore where you're going to be um, more moderate anyway because of the ocean so close by. I should mention to people around the country who don't know that Avalon is one of the New Jersey shore towns. And um, 
climate as climate as you get close to the ocean, it takes the highs and lows away from you. Yeah, no, it's true. So but here's this, here's the ahead. here's the deal. Um, in the spring, when you start to see new growth on your fig, you can go and you should prune out any damaged areas. There's got to be a little bit of winter damage at the top or something like that. So you want to make sure you prune out any dead parts. Really, I mean, if the, if the fig came through winter looking great without being wrapped, um, you feel free to prune away anything that you don't like the look of. And okay. are you interested in trying to control its size or you just want to get the figs? No, well, I want both. But, mm -hmm. but yes, I'd like to control the size because it's, I, I planted it right next to our vegetable garden. And, you know, these things, they can get to be monsters. Yes, yes. And so it could shade the garden, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so yes, you say I it's, am interested. Go you, ahead. You say it's around seven feet tall now, right? It is. Okay. I would, um, in addition to cleaning away any dead wood, any parts that don't look nice, I would take a foot off the top. Okay. And bring it down to six feet. And okay. then see how it produces, see how it looks at the end of the season. Um, if it grows to eight feet, you know, feel free to take it down to six feet again next spring. Okay. So, and even if nothing's wrong, just reduce its height a little bit or go around and prune little bits. Pruning is going to stimulate new growth and it's going to stimulate the fruiting response. Okay. So, you know, now that we're at spring, uh, is it too, still too cold to start to prune it, or what do well, you think? Well, uh, you know, my roses have not yet greened up. Now, I'm in a colder climate than you are. Yeah. Um, do you have any spring bulbs in your yard? Yes, I do, and my tulips and uh, are coming, and the daffodils are in full bloom. Daffodils are in full bloom. I'd say you're probably safe to do it now. Okay. Sounds but, great. You know, if, if if you want to do a big job, do it over a couple of weeks. Do some this weekend. Do a little bit more next weekend. Okay, I love it. All right. This, this, let me tell you, this this was a gift. She took it from a cutting from a from a fig tree that she had, and uh, last year we literally had hundreds of figs. Excellent, excellent. Fig trees love rooting. Um, they are the easiest plant to root. And when they're in an area like yours where the climate is moderated by the ocean, they tend to do really well. That's a lot like their, their native home. Well, I thank you so much, and uh, we'll take care of it, and uh, stay tuned for uh, next, next year's question. All right. Thank you, Donna. Good luck. All right. As promised, it is time for the question of the week. Rose rosette virus. Can it be beaten? Back in 2012, Leanne in Burlington, New Jersey wrote, I have two 25-year-old roses and they have wild areas of unusual bunching and twisted and distorted leaf growth. I Googled it and it looks like witch's broom. What, if anything, uh, can I do? Also from 2012, Gabrielle in Newtown, PA wrote, I've had a gorgeous climbing rose in front of my house for over 10 years with no abnormal growth, putting out white to pale pink roses in abundance. 
But this weekend, I noticed weird clusters with differently shaped leaves, color, and growing habit. I cut out those areas where this occurred. Do you know what this is? Okay, so why am I using questions from 2012? Two reasons. The first, that is I had to search back that far to find people who obviously had the problem that is today's topic. There were a lot of recent questions that might have been about Rose Rosette virus, but those two nailed it. Second, there were a lot of similar questions from that year, and I suspect that this time frame is when the disease really exploded in the Mid-Atlantic region. And third, if you saw my office, you'd realize that seven years isn't a long time for me to get around to doing anything. Yes, that is three reasons. I wanted you to know up front that you're about to take advice from a guy who can't count to three. All seriousness aside, the condition is called Rose Rosette virus. It's been around since the 1940s, but it's occurred with frightening frequency over the last 10 years or so. Witch's broom is a perfect generic description, as those words refer to a deformity that can take many shapes and affect many woody plants. Witch's brooms are often caused by a disease or by mites, and in this case, the scientific consensus is that both are to blame. A tiny little mite, whose name I cannot pronounce, blows in on the wind, feeds on the plant tissue, and transmits a virus that causes the weird distorted growth. Now, this is not uncommon in the garden. Many insects, like the cucumber beetle, do more damage transmitting disease than they do by feeding. Oh, and for the record, yes, I know that mites are not insects. They are arachnids, like ticks and Spider-Man. 2012 was also right around when I noticed this growth on one of my roses a French landscape rose that was marketed under the name flower carpet. The flowers it produced were small, but one well-established plant would typically pump out thousands of them over the course of a summer. One of my favorite tricks was, and still is, to give somebody a bouquet on a branch, three dozen or so roses blooming on a single stem. Very cool. I also have a lot of wine berries, delicious relatives of raspberries that grow wild all through the mid-Atlantic, growing in the same area. And at first, I foolishly thought that the plants had somehow crossed, that I had wineberry canes growing on my roses. Pretty soon, I realized this was probably as wrong as most of my answers on a true or false test. So I pruned off the weird-looking stuff, unaware that the condition is considered fatal, and that I was supposed to put out the whole plant in the trash and call it bad names. The next season, the weird shoots came back, but this time I pruned them off right away. The following year, maybe one cane showed the problem signs. Snip, snip, and that was it. Yes, it seems too simple, but in my garden, simple often works. Then, last summer, I was invited to give a talk in Fayetteville, North Carolina. One of my sponsors, a hospital group called First Health, had a, quote, healing garden for people and their families experiencing serious medical issues and a, quote, hospice garden in another location. The healing garden looked great. There were roses here and there, but they all looked fine. Now, the hospice garden was itself in hospice. 
designed to be a, quote, rose garden. It was wall-to-wall roses, all of which were infected to some degree, and I was asked for suggestions. I said to dig everything out. Rose bushes that were completely infested were to be destroyed. Bushes with small symptoms were to be pruned and healed in in another location, temporarily planted. Then the crappy wood mulch in all the beds was to be removed and replaced with the yard waste compost that helps roses thrive. Then healthy roses were to be slowly reintroduced, but the design could no longer be all roses all the time. Each rose had to be surrounded by a lot of airflow and then something that wasn't a rose, like a cute little evergreen or some nice statue. No roses touching each other, and have a fast hand with the pruners if odd shapes show up. No miticides. The best answer for bad mites is not nasty poisonous chemicals, but the good mites that go after the bad guys like the Lone Ranger in the Old West. So don't kill the good guys, uh, the good arachnids. More airspace, more diversity, both in types of plants and types of roses. Compost mulch, no wood. No chemical fertilizers, which themselves can cause rapid and abnormal growth. You got the problem? Let's try that and see what happens. Well, that sure was some controversial advice about a supposedly incurable disease, now wasn't it? Luckily for those of you who wish to read it over in detail, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to rosette my roses if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-PBSWLVT, which actually means 833-727-9588. Or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. And if that's too many letters for you, you can look up that contact information at our website, youbetyourgarden.org, where you'll also find the answers to all your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, watch me, and our podcast. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is cheerful, Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Davy Aminick works the phones. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Our audio editor is Jazzy Jonas Bowen. Our video editors are Concrete Kelly Hurd and Jelly Roll Jake Boyer. Our mite-infested floor manager is John DeSantis. Harassed and harried Javier Diaz is our director, just might be our producer, and is now worried about disease-carrying mites. Regal Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jaunty Jim McDonald. Our chief techno officer is Andy Cummins. Zach the Tack Wisniewski is in the house. Our CEO, Tim Fallon, is not our executive producer and seems to be testing negative for disease-carrying mites, but we can't be sure because he's late for a meeting. I'm your host, Mike Free Mike McGrath. But just in case, 
I'll prune off all of my bad parts so I can see you again next week.